just say a word about the Jesus Is ministry before we get into the text today in John 9. Jesus Is is an opportunity for you to use your gifts, your passions, your desires to serve Jesus, and then the church to come alongside you and support you. So just like you saw with Cameron and collecting school supplies uh, for people, that and Tara with the needy uh, people in our community, gathering groceries up, taking from the Salvation Army. And so there's opportunities. And so I just encourage you, if you have something you're passionate about, something that you want to do and have our church come alongside you in a similar way, I encourage you to talk to me or go on the app. And that's a great opportunity for our church. We can't do everything from the top down. You know, we come up with ideas and then we try to implement those. That never works. It's so much better that if you can come up with the ideas and stuff that you're passionate about, stuff that you own, and then as a result of that, you, the church body comes around and encourages you. So I want to um, just challenge you to, to look for opportunities to do that. Many of you are doing things where you don't need the church's support necessarily, but in some cases we do. And in, in, in fact, what Tara mentioned, one thing that we need some added support for is it's an especially needy time in our community. We're seeing a lot of people without food and a lot of people where They've just uh, used up the resources at the Salvation Army. And so next week at the end of the service, we're just going to have somebody standing at the door to collect money for uh, food for the Salvation Army. They're in a pretty critical condition there. And so we're going to try to go to the second harvest over in Thomasville and pick up food and bring it back. And so if you'd like to contribute to that uh, next week, that'll be available to you. So next uh, Sunday after church. So we're going to be back in John chapter 9. We're working through the Gospel of John. We've been there for a while, and we're going to continue on to let's pray, and we'll look at our text today. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that gives us life and truth. God, it not only gives us, uh, God, in moments where we think about your truth and we get excited about it, but it puts legs on that truth, and we go out, and we're Jesus in this community, and we're Jesus to those who are around and serving. And, and God, help us today as we learn from you that we won't just take information into our brains, but God, help it to move into our hands and feet so that we truly make a difference in this community for you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this is Labor Day weekend, and great crowd, by the way, if you're watching online, so great attendance here this morning. But kids, Family Worship Sunday, and so a little test for the kids that are in here. If your parent, if your mom or your dad tells you tomorrow, they say, okay, we're going to take a break from your phone tomorrow afternoon, all right? So it's a phone-free afternoon. So from noon to five, we're not using your phone, so there'll be no using your phone for texting, calling, et cetera, et cetera. Find other things to do, all right? And so you go into your room that afternoon, and you're doing things, and your mom comes into the room, and there you are on your iPad texting your friends. And your mom says, what are you doing? And you said, you said not to use my phone, but I'm on my iPad, right? I'm on my iPad. I'm not on my phone. What's going on there? You probably have done that, kids, right? And adults, I know we've done that before, too. Uh, mom, dad, technically, that's not what you said, right? We're holding to the letter of the law while ignoring the spirit of the law. That's what a kid would be doing if they said, I'm not technically using my phone. Well, you missed the purpose behind the law, which was, we don't want you to be communicating with your friends, do stuff in the home today, all right? So we're really good at sometimes obeying the letter of the law while missing the spirit of the law. 
And the Pharisees were especially good at this. During the time of Jesus, they had perfected obedience to the letter of the law, but they failed miserably in obeying and practicing the spirit of the law, the deeper meaning, the reason behind the law. And so as a result, they truly were not, no longer worshiping the God of the Bible. They had created a God in their own image, in their likeness, a God that did what they wanted them, God to do versus the other way around, the way it should be. And so they had missed God, and they were missing God standing before them, as I say often in, in, in these messages. And so the gospel records seven different occasions where Jesus heals a person on the Sabbath day. And nearly every time that happens, the Pharisees call, point of order, Jesus, point of order, you can't be doing that on the Sabbath day, all right? Because technically, God said on the Sabbath day that we're to rest, and healing people is not taking a rest, right? And so they love the letter of the law. But Jesus knew that it was not a violation of God's law. Jesus kept the law perfectly. And one of the reasons Jesus did heal on the Sabbath was to reveal the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and their religion. They would, Jesus pointed out, go and help an animal during the Sabbath day, but they would not help people on the Sabbath day. And so the spirit of the law was God created the Sabbath to be a benefit for people, to help them see that they needed rest from their work. But here in chapter 9, Jesus heals this man who was born blind. He does it on the Sabbath day. And instead of being happy for the man as a benefit to the man, right, God's intention, and honoring Jesus for restoring the man's sight, instead they go on the attack not only against Jesus, but also for the man who was healed. And so to kind of catch you up on the story, if you missed last week, uh, that Jesus took mud, he made mud, and he put it on the man's eyes, and then he didn't just heal him on the spot, he sent the man off, and he actually, if you look at the text, he doesn't say, go and wash at this pool and your eyes will be healed and you'll be able to see. He just says, he puts the mud on, he says, go, and the man in faith, he says, I'm going to obey this guy, he seems like he knows what he's doing, so he goes to the pool of Siloam, and he washes his eyes, and his sight is restored. Well, verse 16 gives us the Pharisee's response. It says, this man, talking about Jesus, he's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So he's not keeping the Sabbath day. He can't be from God. God said, keep the Sabbath. This guy's not keeping the Sabbath, so therefore he's not of God. Well, in verse 17, they asked the man who was healed, what do you think about this guy? And he's like, look, I don't know all the stuff that there is to know about the scriptures. I'm just this poor blind guy, but there's got to be something more to Jesus. He's a prophet at least, right? And by acknowledging that he's a prophet, he's saying this guy has to be from God. He has to be from God because nobody does stuff like this that's not from God. And so the Pharisees, they don't believe the guy was even really blind. It was all a trick. They call his parents to come. You remember, I talked about this last week, called his parents to come. They quiz his parents, they interrogate them, and they're convinced that Jesus is a sinner because he broke the rules. And so they're gonna find out from the parents, was this guy really born blind? His parents uh, affirm, yes, he was born blind. He's our son, he's born blind. But out of fear of being excommunicated from the synagogue, they refuse to answer any questions about Jesus. And they point to the guy and say, he's old enough, ask him. And so the man affirms that Jesus did something supernatural. Verse 25, he answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I know, I was blind, 
now I see. So he says, awful quick to call this guy a sinner when he did something so miraculous. He knew that he had experienced something that only God could provide. He was blind, and so he could see now. And that had been his identity all his life, because being blind in our culture is not a negative stigma. We sure hope it's not. Having a disability is not a negative thing. It definitely causes a little more accommodation and work, but it's not a negative thing. There's no curse upon somebody for having a disability. But in the time of Jesus, they thought this person was cursed of God, or the parents were cursed of God. And so there's this stigma against this person that this person was sinful or his parents were sinful, and he was unclean. And so this man had been a beggar all his life. He was blind and a beggar, but he met Jesus and everything changed. Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But something changed in my life. And it's hard to argue about personal experience, right? Think about your own life for a second. You may not know all there is to know about the Bible, and you may not know all there is to know about sharing Christ and being an apologist for the Scriptures, but you can point to your experience, right? And know that I was lost, and now I'm found. God was against me, and now God is for me. And now I can walk with freedom and in confidence because God is always with me. And Jesus forgave me. And that's what we can all do. We can all share that. We can all share the fact that God changes us. So the facts are obvious, but unfortunately, they will not reach the conclusion that Jesus did anything special. So look at verse 26. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Here they go again. This was round two of interrogation, right? This was not a fact-finding mission they were on. They were trying to discredit this man and ultimately discredit Jesus. And by this time, this guy's exhausted, all right? I mean, he's had a busy day. He's been healed. He went to the pool, washed off, came back. They interrogate him. They're interrogating him again. And he's under this pressure to cave in. But like Mitch Escobar mentioned today about Joshua and courage, this man faces opposition, but he's courageous even as he's being opposed, right? Most of us, when we get opposed or somebody comes at us strong, a lot of times our natural response is to wilt, to wither away. Instead of be strong about our faith, this man is courageous. Look at it. I love even, not only is he courageous, but he throws in some sarcasm in these verses. Verse 27, look at this. He answered them, I have told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Clearly, that's sarcasm. And I'm sure if we were standing around or the people that were standing around hearing him be sarcastic to the religious leaders of the day, they'd have been like, whoa, buddy, you better be careful. This is not going to turn out well for you, right? Remember back in chapter 8, the Pharisees and the religious leaders tried to stone Jesus at this point. And so it doesn't go well for people when they oppose the religious leaders of the day. And here he was, an uneducated, poor beggar who was a a sinner, and the Pharisees are looking at him like, how dare you oppose us, all right? How dare you? Who do you think you are? All right, we are the religious authorities. We're the most educated people in society, We spent our life learning God's word. Who do you think you are mocking us and lecturing us? And so what do they do? They turn to insults and cursing. Look at verse 28. 
and they reviled, that means to criticize him in just in a, an abusive manner, they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we, right, were disciples of Moses. All right, look at us. We, verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know from where he comes from, right? We don't know about this guy. And so look what they're saying. God spoke to Moses. Moses gave us in the, in the first five books, the law, the Torah, he gave us the command. God gave it originally to Moses, or gave it at a creation, and then Moses gave it again, whereas you're to honor the Sabbath day. We're honoring Moses. We're disciples of Moses. Here is this sinner who's coming in, healing people. We don't know where he came from and what his deal is. He's just a carpenter. He's the son of Mary, probably illegitimate, right? And he's from this place called Nazareth. All right, he's this backwards guy. We're students of Moses. We're students of the law. We've been studying this thing. We've memorized this thing. But they don't speak for Moses. And here they are trying to pit Moses against Jesus. But they're not hearing God speak at all through Moses. In fact, Jesus covered this back in chapter 8. It's been a while since we looked at chapter 8. But in verse 47 of chapter 8, Jesus told them, whoever is of God hears the words of God. If, if you're from God, you hear the words of God. The reason you do not, do not hear them is that you are not of God. So he says, you would hear God's word, you would know God's word if you came from God, but you're not of God. Because he was referring to the fact in verse 45, he says, there is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, Jesus says, you would believe me. Why? Because he wrote of me. That's huge. That's such a big deal that he's saying to the Pharisees, the first five books of the law, the law, the first five books of the Bible, these were written to point to Jesus, Jesus is saying. And he's saying that everything that Moses wrote down ultimately was pointing to Jesus and the cross. And so you think about the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, or you think about the Passover lamb, or the bronze snake, or you think about where in Deuteronomy that he said there was going to be a prophet like himself who would come who would be greater than Moses even. And all of these things were pointing to Jesus. They were foreshadowing Jesus. And just like the Passover lamb that had to be offered up every year, Jesus was the once for all Passover lamb. And so if you go back to chapter one, all the way back to the beginning where we started, verse 17, he says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, but he contrasts that to grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 17. Back when I lived in Dallas, I worked for a pastor. His name was Dennis Innigenberg. If you've been around here long, you may be like, that sounds familiar, Innigenberg. It was Jeff Innigenberg, who used to be our worship pastor. His uncle was my pastor there in Dallas. And I love this guy. He was just a, an action kind of guy. He was just a, a do it, put it into action kind of person. And one day, me and the staff, about four or five of us, were walking to a restaurant, and one of the guys, uh, one of the staff guys, took his glasses off, and he said, my glasses are broken. He's like, something's gone wrong here, and they're falling apart. And, and so I'm like, you know, my, I'm like, hmm, interesting, right? Yeah, there's a, definitely a problem there. And a couple other guys, yeah, you're going to have to fix that. Well, Dennis, he doesn't say a word. He just literally reaches out and takes the guy's glasses and starts walking. He's like, guys, follow me. And he walks around the corner to an eyeglasses store, walks in, and says, hey, we got a problem. Can you fix this? 
I love that, that the fact that he did something about the problem, whereas all of us, we were just going to analyze and discuss the problem. He took action and did something about it. Well, Jesus' point is similar. Moses' ministry brought knowledge of the law of God, but the law could only show us how sinful and broken we were. And rather than just bringing more truth, Scripture says that Jesus brought grace and truth. Jesus brought a solution to the problem. You're broken, let's do something about that. Let's get it fixed. Jesus came to offer a solution and permanently fix the problem. So the law pointed to our sin. It showed us that we were sinners. Jesus came to provide a way to experience eternal forgiveness from sin. Verse 30, the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Now, if you're just reading through this and you're not really slowing down and paying attention, that you may think that amazing thing, he's talking about the healing. He's actually talking about the fact that Jesus healed him and they're still in unbelief over it. Like, they're questioning Jesus. He's like, it's amazing that you could see what Jesus did here and you're still just not believing it. He's saying, you've seen this incredible message I mean, this incredible miracle, but you're still rejecting Jesus and the miracle that he performed. Isn't it obvious that this is from God, he's telling them? I love this guy. I love this guy. They say that if a person's lacking or loses one sense, they usually get stronger at other things. Well, this guy, I think he literally has a, a sixth sense, all right? I think he's just got wisdom that wasn't given to him by going to school and getting education. This guy knows his stuff. Look at verse 31, 32. He, he literally starts preaching a sermon to the Pharisees. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has, has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a, my, a man born blind. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. I mean, it's just simple logic, but he lays it out there for him courageously. He says, could, could a, just a sinner do this? Could somebody who's a sinner perform such miracle as Jesus is performing? And so he's putting this all together, right? He's not fully understanding who Jesus is at this point, but he's definitely putting the pieces together. And remember, he's not actually seen Jesus with his eyeballs at this point, all right? Jesus sent him away, and so he's telling all this stuff that happened once he was healed, but he's given this lecture to the most educated people around, the Pharisees. And Jesus did this miracle, and he does these miracles throughout his ministry as a way to authenticate his message, to authenticate his relationship with the Heavenly Father. All right? And I know we live in a day and age where you can just flip through TV at night. If you were having trouble sleeping last night and you were flipping through stations, chances are you came across a TV evangelist who was offering up some healing solutions to people if they would just send in enough money, all right? They're on all the time, right? We, we, people and denominations claim that people within their denomination can heal other people. All right, did you know this? Did you know that there were no faith healings referred to in any New Testament church? Look it up. There were no faith healings referred to in any New Testament church. There is no record in the entire New Testament of anybody in a church being healed. Look it up. 
there were no instructions given to anyone in church or any leaders in church about how to heal people. And as you go through the book of Acts, you'll see that believers begin to get sick. All right, There's a lot of healing at the beginning, but as you go through the book, you see less and less miracles. Because healing, here's the point, healing was not a gift to believers to make them feel better. It was a sign to non-believers to convince them to believe the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. That was the point. Does God heal? Absolutely. Does God heal supernaturally? Absolutely. But one thing to be certain of, and one thing that you see, and you talk to people who are on the mission field, or people who go to areas of the world where there is very, very little truth, you will see that these missionaries, and I know some of them myself, who will say, I saw supernatural things happen there. But that makes sense, because there's no message, there's no Jesus, there's no gospel plastered all over everywhere you go, like it is in our country and many parts of the world, that the gospel is being authenticated. In fact, one of the guys who I, I love more than about anybody else to listen to, his name's Francis Chan, and Francis Chan uh, shared a story where he went to this village, and I forget, I think it was Indonesia, and went out into this, deep into this village, and he said for the first time in his life, he prayed over some people, and literally, he saw healing happen at those points. And, and I really, truly believe, Scripture shows us, again, that healing's not just so believers can just be well, it's to authenticate the message. And that is what Jesus is doing. And the man who was born blind completely gets it. And the Pharisees, who are full of spiritual blindness and full of self-righteousness, refuse to consider what obviously and clearly happened in this situation. And so he gives a sermon, and they can't refute his experience. And so they turn and they attack the man. Verse 34, they answered him, look at this. You were born in utter sin just the disdain they had for him. And you would teach us? And they cast him out. They'd had enough of him. Don't be lecturing us. Remember who we are. And they cast him out. They excommunicate him from the synagogue. And get this, to be excommunicated from the synagogue would be to kick, be kicked out of Judaism. All right, You couldn't practice Judaism apart from the synagogue. And so what happens? Here's the man, born blind. He's healed. He's kicked out now. He doesn't fully understand who Jesus is. What's he to do? Well, what I love about Jesus and what I love about even for our own lives, Jesus takes the initiative and he finds the man. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard. They cast him out. And having found him, he said, he said do you believe in the Son of Man. Jesus reached down to this man and gave him physical sight, and now he reaches out to him and offers him spiritual sight. I love that. Think about when Jesus came for you. All right? I know from our standpoint, most of the time, it feels like, like we found Jesus. All right? I was at this place, and I heard the message, and I responded to the message. But look, Jesus was seeking after you you just didn't realize it. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And we love because why? He first loved us. 
John tells us that in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. And so when Jesus came to a blind, dead sinner, they have to acknowledge and respond to the message before Jesus would give spiritual sight. But make no mistake, Jesus pursues and he came after. Let me ask you this. Jesus asked the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? He wasn't asking there, do you believe that the Son of Man or a Son of Man exists? All right, that's not the question. Does the Son of Man exist? He's asking the man, do you place your trust in the Son of Man? You see, there's a a huge difference between just believing that Jesus exists, the Son of Man exists, or placing your trust in the Son of Man. You see, a lot of people want to be like the Pharisees, the letter of the law, right? I believe that Jesus existed. I believe that he walked this planet. But it kind of ends about the place where you would believe in George Washington or Napoleon, that you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, I've come to give you life and give it to you to its fullest. And I think a lot of people don't experience that because they're kind of stuck over in this letter of the law, I believe, and that's good enough, rather than placing their trust and their hope and their confidence in Jesus Christ. In my Bible reading today, just going through the scripture in in two years, it was all about Jesus saying, hey, if you're going to follow me, you got to hate your father and mother. Now, kids, Jesus isn't literally saying to hate your father and mother, but he's saying compared to your love for Jesus, you should be willing to give up your family, what's familiar at one point, some point in your life when you're an adult. If he calls you to go, you go. That should not hold you back from following him and doing what he's called you to do. And so Jesus said, look, if you, don't want to, if you don't want to come after me and take up your cross, then you're not worthy of me. And so Jesus is showing it's about trust. It's not just about intellectual affirmation toward Jesus. It's about putting your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ. And so while we easily spot the letter of the law with the Pharisees, it's prominent in our society today. There's many people. I, I, I get so many good conversations with many of you and those of you who have come to grace in the last few years out of maybe a tradition where you just were like affirming Jesus, but it was just boring, going through the motions, religion. There was no real relationship with Jesus because you'd never put your faith and trust in him. And now your eyes are opened and you're like, I need to learn more. I need to know more. I need to be discipled. You see, when you really truly come to Jesus, there's an eagerness to learn more about him. But for the letter of the law, people, it's enough, right? I go to church, check it off my list. I got some religion, but I don't really know Jesus. But Jesus says, do you believe? Do you trust? Are you putting your confidence in me? Look at verse 36. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him. I love the irony there. You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he went on his way, went to church once a week, right? No, what did he do? And he worshiped him. He worshiped Jesus. That's what I'm talking about. When, when Jesus gets a hold of us and truly changes us, we respond to God differently. 
That's what worship is. Worship is our response to God. That's what worship is, our responding to God. And true worship implies a delight in Jesus, a delight in God. That I, I desire God, I honor God, I want to be with God. I want to worship Jesus. I want him to lead my life. So the question is, honestly, are you worshiping Jesus? How are you worshiping? How's your worship? Honestly, think about that. How is your worship? How's your response to God? Are you vowing, valuing Jesus in your life? Look at your worship. Just take inventory of your worship for a second. Think about your last week. Did you spend time with God, praying and reading his word? And I know, I'm not being a hypocrite and saying every day you wake up just like pumped up and going strong, but you get up and you open the word and you pray and say, God, open my eyes to your truth. Because I believe by faith that this is your truth. This is your word given to us. And while today it may be a struggle for me as I'm reading to stay, you know, to stay fully engaged, and I feel like, man, I'm digging deep here in numbers, you know, and it's pretty tough to get much out of it. But we know that it's God's word, and it points to Jesus, and that's worship. I've said this many, many times as your pastor, and I'll say it many more times. Worship is bringing all that you have at that moment to God. And there's sometimes when you go through horrible things in life and difficulties in life, or you're very alone or depressed or discouraged, that your worship is low down here, but you're all, this is all you got. I'm giving it all to you, Jesus. It's about you by faith. I'm not just a believer in the letter of the law. I'm a believer in the spirit of the law. I know that you are who you say you are, and you can do what you said you're going to do. And I'm responding to that in this moment. Even if I don't have a lot to offer, it's all I got. What does that look like in your life? Are you responding? Because if you're not responding to God with at least some level of delight, I think you need to really look at your worship and see, is it just ritualistic going through the motions? Or is there a legitimate Holy Spirit living within you who's drawing your heart to the Word and to Jesus and to lift His name up? more and more throughout your life, and you're growing, and you want to please and honor him. Look at your worship. How are you responding? Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not, do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Just keep that verse up just for a second, Noah. Look at that. Just look at that verse. For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see, they may see, and those who see may become blind. Back when I was in school, my brother and I, my brother was 20 months older than me, and we shared a car, and we rode to school together, so we spent a lot of time in the car together. Well, my brother and I always were in conflict on the temperature within the car, all right? My brother liked it warm. I liked it cold, all right? I wanted to be cold. He liked to crank up the heat even during like the fall and the spring, all right? It, it didn't go well typically. And, and so when my brother was driving, I'm like, Mark, it's way too warm in this car. Here was his response. I'm the driver. I get to control the temperature. Okay, makes sense, all right? 
So fast forward a, a couple days later, I'm driving. I try to control the temperature. He's like, no, 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 no. You focus on driving. I control the temperature, right? A no-win situation. We know when it comes to temperature, even in this room, there's no perfect temperature. We all have different degrees of what we like, literally, right? We all have different things like we want in comfort. Well, when it comes to Jesus, it's not just whatever temperature you want with Jesus, whatever you want religion you want, whatever you want your way is fine, is cool. No, Jesus says in this verse that it's completely and totally about him. And he's decisive that when it comes to faith in God, it has to be what Jesus wants, not our preferences, okay? What we want doesn't matter, what Jesus wants. And many people think that religion is just believe something passionately with your heart, but it doesn't really matter what you believe. Just believe it, right? Just believe in something. Well, it's not the case because Jesus said, those who do not see, he says, I'm coming to the world so they can see. Jesus determines who is blind and who can see spiritually. He's the only authority. In the end, Jesus says there's only two types of people. Those who think they can see, they think they're religious, they think they know God, but they don't because they've not come through Jesus. They've not put their faith in Jesus. So he says they're blind and they don't realize they're blind. And then there are those who have realized how blind and needy and desperate they are. And they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Two types. Two types of people. Which are you? The Pharisees stuck to their beliefs regardless of the evidence. Not only were they wrong, but they were conducting an entire religious system where they were leading people down the path. It was the blind following the blind. In fact, in Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you blind guides. They were guiding people into sin and destruction because they loved their letter of the law, but they did not love the lawgiver. And Jesus came to bring them light. Look at verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? You know, you can just see the self righteous. Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. What's Jesus saying? A little cryptic there. What he's saying is, if only the Pharisees would admit their blindness, they could be forgiven of their sins. If they would admit their blindness, they could be forgiven of their sins. You see, understanding that we're desperate and lost and spiritually blind apart from Jesus Christ is a good spot to be in. It's a great spot to be in. But when we all of a sudden start to feel self-righteous and we start to feel like that we're better than other people and that our religion some way elevates us above the masses, we're falling into the attitude of the Pharisees. And we begin worshiping a God created in our image rather than the God of the Scriptures. I love old dead preachers, right? Charles Spurgeon is, a, is an old dead preacher, died many, many years ago, but he wrote this. He said, it is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our weakness that hinders Christ, it is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ, it is our supposed light that holds back his hand. 
There's just something about being humble and needy for Jesus. And as Christians, just staying humble and needy for Jesus, realizing that as soon as we start to elevate ourselves and look around the landscape of humanity and all of a sudden feel like we are sort of at a higher plane intellectually, spiritually, watch out. If you're a believer, there's about to be a crisis because God will not have competition. God will not have proud people who steal his glory representing him as ambassadors. So is your bigness in the way of your smallness? Is your strength in the way of your weakness? Is your supposed light in the way of you taking Christ's hand and allowing him to lead you into light? So our application today, head, Jesus only, only Jesus opens the eyes of those who know they need his help to see. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can open one's spiritual eyes. We know that intellectually, but from our heart, spiritual sight leads to worship. Spiritual sight, if your eyes have been open, it's going to happen just like it did for the blind man. The response is going to be worship. I want to know more of your word, God. I want to know more of your people, God. I want more of your spirit. I want to walk in your truth more and more. I want to fight sin and run from sin, and I'm going to be quick to ask forgiveness, confess my sin when I sin, and run to you, Jesus, so that you can live through me and in me. That's worship, a living sacrifice. So if you understand you need Jesus and you need spiritual sight and he opens your eyes, it always ends in worship. And today, that's what we're going to do with our hands application. Because don't, don't check out, oh, okay, we're almost to the end now. We're going to do the Lord's Supper. We do that once a month, and then we're out of here, right? If there's any act of worship that the church physically interacts with and really is able to get our hands on and think about the message of the gospel, it's during the Lord's Supper. And so today, as we take the juice and we take the little wafer, this is a very clear, tangible reminder to you of the gospel and the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's a time where you slow down, you pause, and you look at your life, and you pray, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, examine my heart. Show me my pride. Show me where it's been more about me than about Jesus. I want to reorient my life around Jesus Christ. And I want that to be worship in my life.